Welcome to the very first installment of Hot Cakes from a 90s Stand podcast. I'm your host, Dove Brenner, and I am beyond excited to discuss music for y'all over the course of the next hour. Before I dive into the specificities of this particular episode, I want to give y'all a brief description of my vision for this podcast. This podcast will be filled with history, conversation, and opinions about music from artists of the last four decades with a special focus on 90s artists. The podcast will focus on rock music, but will also touch on other significant artists as well as songs and albums of different genres. The podcast will be thematically rotational and may consist of the following. Signature songs from different artists, forgotten albums, and of course, a random hot take, or a random topic related to music. Today we begin the thematic rotation, zeroing in on a signature song of a particular artist. Before I tell you the artist, which you already know based on the title of this episode, I want to ask a simple question. What does it mean to be a signature song of a particular artist? The conventional wisdom would say that it is merely the most popular song by an artist, and that the song is most linked to the artist at hand. I respect that this is popular knowledge, but it is a piece of knowledge I respectfully disagree with. The most popular song by a given artist could easily be their signature song, but it doesn't guarantee it. Obviously, an artist's signature tune has to be popular, as connecting to listeners is the first step on its mission to potentially result with that label of honor. But for me, to be the signature song, many other factors need to be considered. Therefore, some of the questions I may ask will be, how is the song regarded by the fan base? Does the musicality encompass the better part of their stylistic history? Are the lyrics written in a manner that consists of an endearing attitude to which the artist is associated? Do the lyrical themes convey a personality characteristic, personal detail, or a personal struggle that has endeared the listener to that lyricist or band member or band members? What is the legacy of the song? Has it been covered? Has it been lauded? Has it been influential? I understand that some of these questions, comments, and or takes may come off as snobby or pretentious or contrarian, and I welcome guests to scold me and point out whatever flaws exist in any given take. That being said, those criticisms will have to take a bit of a snooze as I go it alone in the baptism of the podcast's first signature song. The artist discussed today will be the legendary grunge superheroes Nirvana. time was a very important year for me. In July of that year, I moved from a small suburb of a small city in New York State to a bigger suburb of a bigger city in Florida. But that was not the most significant change in my life that occurred that year. That was the year I discovered a passion for rock music. I explored the discographies of bands that I'd only scratched the surface with years prior, listening to my brother's now that's what I call music CDs, such as the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Green Day, and Blink-182. I also discovered legendary rock bands, many of which I still cherish this very day, including Queen, Led Zeppelin, The Ramones, Kiss, Black Sabbath, ACDC, and the Jimi Hendrix Experience. I probably never would have sought out any of those artists if it wasn't for a charity event in April of that year. My cousin Neil was visiting to help my mom with the fourth annual autism walk that her nonprofit autism awareness organization carried out. 
I was so excited that weekend to see my big cousin Neil, who was seven years my senior. The day after the event, we sat in the music room of my house, where I was known to incoherently bang on my brother's drums. Although my dad was a bassist at the time, there was a very old Yamaha acoustic guitar. Whenever Neil would visit, I sat in awe listening to him go to town on that six-string flat-top box. That weekend, in April 2005, he played a riff that up to that point in my life was the coolest 10 seconds of music I had ever heard. Those 10 seconds of music led me to pick up the guitar three months later. Those 10 seconds inspired me to take a little knowledge I knew about percussion and build upon it to become a drummer. And those 10 seconds initiated the framework for how I would interact with my peers and develop friendships throughout my adolescent years. Those few seconds was the guitar introduction to the 1991 smash hit, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. I won't bore you with too much of the history of Nirvana, as they are one of the most celebrated and documented musical artists in modern American history. I will share the cliff notes in case you aren't too familiar with them. Everyone thinks of Nirvana as an alt-rock trio from Seattle consisting of Kurt Cobain on guitar and vocals, Chris Novoselic on bass, and Dave Grohl on drums. However, this wasn't quite the original lineup, nor were they quite originally from Seattle. In 1985, Cobain met Novoselic in Aberdeen, Washington. If you're not familiar with Aberdeen, congratulations. There is a chance you spend time dedicating yourself to gaining knowledge of useful information. But, if you're like me, then you know that Aberdeen, Washington is a small city a little over 100 miles southwest of Seattle. The two met when Cobain was a janitor at Aberdeen High School. They bonded over their love for punk rock and spent a lot of time early in their friendship hanging out in the practice space of grunge pioneers, the Melvins. The two started playing music together in 1986 and struggled initially to settle on a drummer. In 1987, they recruited a buddy of theirs that they met amongst the Melvins' centered circle of friends named Aaron Buckhart. Still without a name, this trio started gigging consistently that year. However, Cobain and Novoselic quickly became unimpressed with Buckhart's inconsistency and flakiness. This, of course, is the only time in human history a drummer has been described as such. Buckhart was canned and replaced by Dave Foster, a skilled drummer, albeit with anger issues which sharply contrasted the pacifist vibes that Cobain and Novoselic prided themselves on. Nonetheless, the new trio continued gigging, and it was during this time that the band settled on the name Nirvana. Though none of the members of the trio identified with any of the belief systems associated with the concept of nirvana, which is in several Eastern religions, known as a transcendent state in which there is neither suffering, desire, nor sense of self, and the subject is released from the effects of karma and the cycle of death and rebirth. Cobain mentioned the reason for the name was purely because it sounded nice and pretty, which he believed differed from the more aggressive names of punk rock bands at the time. Jonathan Poneman, who founded the legendary indie label Sub Pop Records, saw the band live and was impressed enough to invite Nirvana to record a 10-song demo. In January of 1988, the band recorded their demo with the drummer of the Melvins, Dale Crover, because of Foster's inability to attend the session. The $153 demo featured many songs that would eventually end up on their 1992 compilation album, Incesticide. In April of that year, Sub Pop invited the band to perform at the label's showcase event, Sub Pop Sundays. The band did not play up to their expectations, and they fired Foster as a result. 
Nirvana eventually settled on Chad Channing of the band Tick Dolly Rowe, with skills on the skins and a healthy resentment of authority. Finally it, finally, it appeared. The band had a drummer that they clicked with both musically and philosophically. In June of 88, the trio, the trio recorded some tunes, three of which would be released later that year. In November, Sub Pop released Nirvana's cover of Love Buzz, originally by the Dutch rock group Shocking Blue, as well as the minimalist sludge metal tune Big Cheese. Both songs would subsequently be featured on their debut album that we will get to in a second. Wow, I have certainly put forth more information than I anticipated. I'm a sucker for a good origin story, so I promise this history lesson will gradually become more concise as I dive into the meat of their short yet significant tenure. Well, I hope it will. Anyways, the other song to be released by the label in 88 was Spank Through, which was included in the three-EP compilation album dubbed Sub Pop 200, which the label released in December of that year, featuring several other Seattle bands, including Screaming Trees, Green River, and Soundgarden. It's beautiful and amusing that Spank Through was truly the first song to be featured on a record. The song, which musically is as grunge as grunge gets, displays Kurt's personality to shine. As the song hilariously pays homage to masturbation, it's as poetic as it is sophomoric. The song opens with the lines, And as the soft, pretentious mountains glisten in the light of the trees, and quickly shifts energy with the chorus of, I can feel it, I can hold it, I can bend it, I can shape it, I can mold it, I can cut it, I can taste it, I can spank it, I can beat it, masturbate it. The band recorded their debut album Bleach in late 88 slash early 89 in only six sessions, which cost them roughly $600. The album was released in June of 1989 and featured only one single, their cover of Love Buzz. Musically, for the most part, the album conformed to the sludge-inspired grunge sound that Sub Pop desired at the time, according to Cobain, and in terms of lyrics, which Cobain deemed of lesser importance, is about his experience growing up in Aberdeen. Although the album wasn't a smash hit, it did give the band recognition and ultimately peaked at 89 on the Billboard Hot 200 albums chart and to this day is the highest-selling Sub Pop album. When it came time to record their follow-up record, Tensions once again arose between the dudes with string instruments and the drummer. Cobain and Novoselic started to resent Channing's chops, or lack thereof, and Channing felt he was being left out of the songwriting process. Channing departed from the band in 1990 without any hard feelings, but Nirvana was once again without a drummer. Then, sometime in 1990, Cobain was reluctantly dragged to see the hardcore punk band Scream perform at the I-Beam in San Francisco by Buzz Osborne, the guitarist, singer, songwriter, and founding member of, you guessed it, the Melvins. Any qualms that Cobain had about attending the gig were quickly alleviated by the prowess of Scream's drummer, Dave Grohl. During the performance, Cobain told Osborne and the other attendees in his party, quote, that's the kind of drummer we need. Shortly after the performance, Scream disbanded and Grohl was without work. Around this time, Grohl contacted Osborne unrelated and Osborne informed him of Cobain's interest in him. Grohl subsequently joined the band. The buzz, no pun intended, surrounding Bleach attracted the interest of many major labels. Nirvana ended up signing with Geffen Records. In 1991, the new lineup went into the studio to record their follow-up album Nevermind, 
which was produced by Butch Vig, who in addition to his producing cred, is also known as the drummer of the 90s alt-rock group Garbage. The album was mixed by Vig as well as Andy Wallace, who also mixed my favorite album of all time, Grace, by Jeff Buckley. The recording sessions lasted six weeks and was released on September 24, 1991, the same day that another 90s alt-rock classic, Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, came out. So, you could make an argument that date was the moment the 90s began. It wouldn't be a great argument, considering the 90s began 631 days prior, but you get the point. The album, which possessed a healthy stylistic dynamic, including punk, grunge, as well as folky acoustic tunes, became a gargantuan success, hitting number one on the Billboard Hot 200 in January of 1992. The singles Come As You Are, In Bloom, Lithium, and of course the generational monolithic anthem Smells Like Teen Spirit supported the album. I have to say it amazes me that I've made it this far into telling the story of Nirvana without mentioning the dark side of Kurt Cobain. And I think this may be unconsciously intentional. As someone enamored with the sounds and stories of music, I want to celebrate it rather than fixate on the demons within it. But you can't tell the story of Nirvana without recounting those demons. Cobain started using heroin in 1986 primarily as a coping mechanism to deal with depression, bipolar disorder, and a stomach condition. He struggled with addiction throughout his adult life, and his problem eventually and inevitably reached the tabloids when it was rumored in a Vanity Fair article that he and his wife, Courtney Love, were shooting up while Love was pregnant with their child, Francis Bean. Cobain made an attempt at sobriety in 1992, entering rehab, but unfortunately he was never able to fully kick the habit. Anyways, back to the music. In February of 1993, the band headed to Cannon Falls, Minnesota to record their follow-up album, In Utero. Nirvana changed producers, opting to go with Chicago-based Steve Albini, who had worked previously with alt-rock groups such as the Pixies and the Breeders. Although the band booked studio time for two weeks, they ended up recording the album much faster than anticipated, with Grohl telling Rolling Stone, quote, We blazed through In Utero. I was done after three days. I had 10 fucking days to sit in the snow on my ass with nothing to do. The album was released September 21st, 1993, almost two years to the day of the release of the record's predecessor. Instead of matching the overall radio friendliness of Nevermind, In Utero possessed a lyrical darkness and musically saw a return to their punk rock roots with an added layer of noise rock. The latter, certainly not an element found in pop music. Lyrically, Cobain referred to the album as the most concentrated and thematical in their discography. The lyrics are personal, abrasive at times, often poignant, but thought-provoking as hell. Demonstrating the loyalty of their fan base and the interest the mainstream public had in the band, In Utero debuted at number one, and to date has sold 50 million copies. Four singles supported the album. Well, technically three, with one release with double A-sides. Of those singles, Heart Shaped Box achieved the most success. The last significant positive moment in the lore of the band took place in November of 1993. The band played an acoustic gig in New York at the Sony Music Studios as part of MTV's Unplugged series, which had featured fellow alternative rock bands Pearl Jam and Soul Asylum in previous episodes. The roughly one-hour performance featured several covers, ending with Cobain screaming the last verse of an old folk song, In the Pines, though Nirvana dubbed it Where Did You Sleep Last Night? That tune, along with the rest of the performance, is heralded as one of the greatest live rock performances of all time, perhaps only second to Queen's 1985 performance at Live Aid. 
1994 is where it ended for Nirvana, unfortunately. Cobain's addiction and decades-long mental health issues caught up with him, culminating in an overdose of alcohol and pills while touring in Rome, Italy, causing him to relapse on heroin. He then checked into a Los Angeles-based rehab facility at the end of the month. Cobain quickly escaped and flew back to Seattle where he purchased a gun and took his own life on April 5, 1994 and was found by an electrician three days later. Since then, there have been many conspiracy theories regarding his death, which I have no interest in discussing now, maybe later. We'll see. I will end the history portion of the episode, briefly returning to that unplugged episode filmed in November of 1993. The performance was released as a live album on November 1st, 1994, at a time when the world was still mourning the death of Kurt Cobain and were hungry for any music connected to him. The album debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 200 and went five times platinum. The only single from that record, the opening song, an acoustic version of their poppiest song from Bleach, about a girl, went to number one on the rock charts and has since become one of the, their most iconic songs, and even maybe their signature song. In my effort of determining what the signature song of the legendary rock group Nirvana is, I listened intently to an anthology of Nirvana songs I deemed their quintessential tunes. And by I, I mean Spotify. Within the 10 most popular original songs on Spotify, I began to determine the common themes in their music that listeners can identify as uniquely Nirvana. The first thing I noticed was that although they are known for their punk-infused grunge music, they are a dynamic band with several enduring ballads. Two of these are amongst their most popular. But beyond those ballads, many of their popular tunes feature soft verses and louder, more aggressive choruses. And although many of their most memorable sound bites are loud and raw, seven of their most popular songs open up with a clean guitar intro. No distortion. Six of those seven songs, though, get wild in the chorus. I also noticed that Cobain is not a great rock guitar player. I'm sorry, I, mean to, I meant to say he's not a traditional rock guitar player. His less is more approach is palpable and endearing, and, on all, and, and though there are many guitar solos throughout their discography, most of the time Cobain merely plays the melody of the song's verses or choruses, but with added effects, of course. Simple, yet memorable and connected. However, what Cobain didn't have as a lead guitar player, he made up for it as a standout rhythm guitar player. And furthermore, the overall rhythm in that band was second to none. Especially on Nevermind in, and In Utero, the rhythmic cohesion between Cobain, Novoselic, and Grohl shined immensely, especially on songs like Smells Like Teen Spirit, Lithium, and the anti-sexual assault song Rape Me. Also, another keen observation I made. Dave Grohl is a fucking monster on the skins. Beyond instrumentals, my, fa my favorite common theme I noticed within this anthology was that Cobain liked to scream. And my goodness, could he scream? His screams were as melodic as they were angry. They were as endearing as they were piercing, and they might be the defining aspect of him as a vocalist. Lyrically, the evolution of Cobain remains one of the most tragic aspects of his death, artistically speaking. As I previously mentioned, he initially didn't regard lyrics as the most important element, preferring the music, which is evidenced through many nonsensical tunes delivered via witty wordplay. However, over the course of their three studio albums, themes develop and messages become clear and Cobain's lyrical voice solidifies. As a songwriter, getting dark never scared him. 
Within that darkness almost always, almost always existed a sense of humor, though the scale of that humor varied. For example, in Dumb off of In Utero, it's very subtle with the overall message, I think I'm dumb, or maybe just happy. Whereas in In Bloom off of Nevermind, in the song he roasts both botany and bandwagon fans, which is just outright hilarious. So in conclusion, through the creative wordplay Cobain employed, the dark nature of his lyrics, and the blistering humor, he establishes a personality that listeners are acquainted with. That personality trumps the reality that sometimes his lyrics didn't make sense, and there wasn't always a discernible theme. That personality, though, is why Cobain is considered one of the great rock lyricists of all time, and that personality is front and center on their signature song. So through a close listen to an anthology of Nirvana's discography, I have determined that the signature song will likely be rhythmically impeccable without any indulgent shredding from Cobain. The tune will likely feature Cobain's iconic screams and Grohl's unmistakable animalistic pounding on the skins. It will likely feature the persistent structure of soft burst slash loud chorus, where distortion and velocity are the factors to be measured. I think the signature song should feature Cobain's songwriting at its best, so with a tangible theme and or story. The darkness has to be omnipresent, but the humor has to ride the seesaw with it, enabling the clarity of Cobain's personality. I will now present the five songs I opine could have been the signature song and will present the grand winner at the end. I could have picked About a Girl off their 1989 debut album Bleach, although not released as a single until 1994 in which the unplugged version hit number one on the rock charts. It's widely popular amongst the fan base. Between the studio and unplugged version, the song has over 300 million plays on Spotify. There is no music video for the studio version, but the unplugged version on YouTube has over 50 million views. The song musically finds itself as the one that is not like the others on Bleach. And it's perhaps the, the poppiest song in their catalog, as well as probably the only non-petrifying love song in their discography, for lack of a better word. The recurring presence of the phrase, I do, lyrically characterizes the song, which Cobain perhaps included in connection to matrimony. The song reached a wider audience early in the pandemic when the comedy gods brought us an acoustic cover by the band Puddle of Mud. The cover featured singer Wes Scanlon unsuccessfully attempting to reach the higher notes throughout the song. I would describe it further, but if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend checking it out for a good laugh. Also, I do not want to continue to mock that band, as I do enjoy Blurry and She Hates Me by the post-grunge icons. Back to Nirvana's version, I do, no pun intended, love this song, and recognize its importance to the story of the band. But I feel that this song lacks so many elements that people heavily identify with the trio. The lyrics aren't dark enough, or humorous enough. Cobain doesn't really scream. There isn't that verse-chorus contrast with regards to intensity, and with Chad Channing on the helm on drums, the rhythm isn't tight enough. But again, great song. I could have picked the band's second most popular song, Come As You Are, from their 1991 breakthrough album, Nevermind. It has almost 900 million plays on Spotify, and the music video has over 470 million plays on YouTube. The song peaked at number 32 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number 3 on the Rock Charts. Famous covers of the song include widely popular artists, such as the cast of American Horror Story and the multifaceted rapper Post Malone. The goats of pop-punk, Blink-182, referenced the song in 1999 on their not-so-pop-punk tearjerker Adam song. 
Come As You Are has been featured in various movies and shows throughout the years, further establishing its status as an alt-rock classic. Is it their signature song, though? The lyrics serve as the poster child for Cobain's tendencies to include creative diction, but without a clear message or meaning. Some think the song is about heroin, but I'm not sold on that theory. Cobain stated for this tune he merely wanted the lyrics as simple as possible. Musically, the song garnered controversy for the riff's similarity to the London-based post-punk band Killing Joke's tune, The 80s. Displeased, Killing Joke accused Nirvana of plagiarism, but it remains unclear if the band ever proceeded to make a legal claim against Nirvana. The song features many of Nirvana's common themes, soft verse with a louder chorus, and a guitar solo that loosely mirrors the melody of the verses. Not one of Nirvana's common themes, but there is an awesome harmony during the chorus on the line, don't have a gun. Definitely listen for that next time you check out the tune. However, due to the lack of a perceptible message, the overpolished production, the faint contrast in verse to chorus intensity, and the sour taste that the plagiarism accusation leaves, I don't see how this can be Nirvana's signature song. I could have picked Heart Shaped Box from their 1993 album In Utero, easily their most successful single from that record, with over 500 million plays on Spotify and over 230 million plays on YouTube, and a peak of number one on the rock charts. Additionally, the Hard Rock magazine, Kerrang! listed it at number 10 on their list of the greatest rock songs of all time in 1999. The lyrics deal with a toxic romantic relationship, which many link to Cobain's marriage to Courtney Love. The lyrics at time get sinister. For example, in the first verse, one line reads, I've been drawn into your magnet tar pit trap. I wish I could eat your cancer when you turn black. Non-erotic sexual imagery makes an appearance in the second verse with the lines, Broken hymen of your highness, I'm left, back, I'm left black. Throw down your umbilical noose so I can climb right back. This tune displays the summit of the bleakness of Cobain's lyricism, but as Cobain so effectively does, the presence of humor provides listeners with needed comic relief in the sarcastic chorus, Hey! Wait, I've got a new complaint. Forever in debt to your priceless advice. The contrast of the lyrical moods between the verse and the chorus mirror the music, as once again we have a soft verse slash loud chorus. And by God, the chorus is loud and it's dirty. It's partially loud because Cobain accompanies the sarcasm with his famous scream. The guitar solo, also loud, mimicking the melody of the chorus before fading back into the softness of the third verse. Instrumentally, the song is loosely tight. That oxymoron may seem like a cliched description, but it's accurate. It would take too long to back that up here, though. So give the track a listen, and you can yell at me if you find that take wrong. I can't tell you, though, how beautiful I find the song, which to me results as the clear runner-up for the honor of Nirvana's signature song. I would have presented it as the penultimate song, but as you will see, the song I will discuss before Nirvana's signature song really has to be the one discussed before Nirvana's signature song. Regarding why Heart Shaped Box doesn't take the title, well, while I do find the lyrics daunting, haunting, and beautiful, the darkness to humor ratio overwhelmingly favors the darkness, which slightly inhibits the full presence of Cobain's personality. And if you're the crowning tune, you gotta heavily feature that. Well, folks, I present my first major hot take of the podcast. 99% of y'all probably thought I would have I would crown this next tune as Nirvana's signature song. So, here we go. I could have chosen Smells Like Teen Spirit, their breakthrough single from their breakthrough album, Nevermind. With nearly 1.5 billion plays on Spotify, 
1.5 billion views on YouTube, a number six spot on the Billboard Hot 200, a number one peak on the rock charts, covers, features and films and shows, accolades, placement on year-end, decade-end, and century-end lists. Well, the last one I'm not sure about. The success, legacy, and influence of this song remains remarkable and unmistakable. But as I stated earlier, not all of that necessarily plays into the sacred label. The song starts off with that iconic riff, the riff that got me and probably millions of other millennials into rock music, the riff that would set the tone for both the rhythm and the chord progression of the entire song. The rhythm, to me, defines the tune, and the chorus, Grohl and Novoselic, match it. You probably guessed that the song incorporates their soft verse slash loud chorus mantra, and the solo, like Come As You Are, in classic Nirvana fashion, features Cobain interpreting the melody of the verse. The song ends with the chorus's rhythm slightly altered to match Cobain's unobstructed screamed chant in which he repeatedly cries, a denial. All of these components make it seem destined for the throne, but it's the lyrics for me that take it out of the running. While Cobain utilizes perhaps his most creative wordplay, for example, I'm worst at what I do best, and I found it hard. It was hard to find. Oh well, whatever, never mind. The song lacks a clear message and only sporadically finds any semblance of coherence. Please don't take this as a criticism. I love this song. I adore the song. This deserves its place in rock history and modern musical lore. But Nirvana's signature song has to reflect Cobain's evolution and prowess as a songwriter. Smells Like Teen Spirit, even within its mesmerizing five minutes, does not do that. Now for the moment you have all been waiting for. The signature song, The Goldilocks Planet of Nirvana Song their third single off of Nevermind, Lithium. The song's 450 million plays on Spotify, 245 million plays on YouTube, and a peak spot of 64 on the Billboard Hot 100 demonstrate the high regards of the tune within the band's fan base and mainstream music's, mainstream music's consciousness. Musically, not to sound like a broken record, but it continues their tendency of a soft verse and heavy chords. The track begins with a short guitar introduction serving as the riff throughout the verses. Rhythmic palm muting on clean setting characterizes it, but that quiet riff quickly becomes aggressive. The gnarly chorus contains distorted guitars, pounding snare hits which cleverly match the vocal melody, big power chords, and a repeated scream from Cobain of the word, yeah. The intensity of the second chorus leads to an, leads to an unhinged, unhinged, loud and abrasive bridge in which his rugged scream takes center stage. The interlude following the bridge consists of just bass and drums and continues in the third verse with its minimalism allowing lyric listeners to really concentrate on the repeated lyrics of the first verse. This bi binary tune concludes with the third chorus and repetition of the deranged bridge. In terms of meaning, lithium is an element in drug use and treat bipolar disorder and depression, perhaps setting the context. The lyrics tell a story about a man that turns to religion following the, the loss of his significant other. While the lyrics suggest that the narrator may have been responsible for his partner's death, Cobain stated, I can't decide what caused her to die. To die. Let's say she died of AIDS or a car accident or something, and he's going around brooding, and he turned to religion as a last resort to keep himself alive, to keep him from suicide. That quote removes any doubt regarding the mood of the lyrics. Dark humor accompanies, rather dominates, 
this bleak and gloomy subject matter. Cobain uses the amusing lyrical tactic of apathetic follow-ups to severe and concerning statements. For example, quote, I'm so lonely. That's okay. I shaved my head, but I'm not sad. As well as, and just maybe, I'm to blame for all I've hurt, but I'm not sure. And my favorite, I'm so horny. That's okay. My will is good. Also, the wording of the unhinged madness of the bridge comes across as silly as it does maniacal. Even the repeated one-word chorus in which Cobain screams over and over the word yeah is humorous. That validating word within music historically lends itself for celebratory purposes. For example, in the, in the song She Loves You by the Beatles, it celebrates love. In the song Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, it celebrates the frontman's sobriety. And the song Yeah by the R&B singer Usher celebrates promiscuity and hedonistic exploits. But in Lithium, nothing appears celebratory, making the questionable placement of the word ironic, dark, and funny. This song includes almost everything that defines Nirvana and endears fans to the band. The rhythm is tight, the contrast between verse and chorus is stark, Cobain screams, the lyrics are dark and maddening, but with palpable humor, and the tangible theme and story of the song demonstrates Cobain's evolution as a songwriter, thereby making Nirvana's signature song. My affinity for Nirvana, established at a young age, made me envision a place in a rock band whether it was embodying Dave Grohl and banging on the drums, laying down the bass line like Novoselic, or screaming my demons into their microphone like Cobain did, I wanted to be on that stage. Acting upon that vision led me to meet my bandmate, friend, and very first guest on the podcast, CPA, electric guitar virtuoso, and SpongeBob Stan. Please welcome Mr. Ryan Gilman. Dude, thank you for the warm welcome. Oh my gosh. I really felt that when uh, you're talking about screaming in the mic at practice. I can see it now. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> well, there, I don't know. There's something cathartic about like when you like scream into the microphone and you have that good PA system and you can hear yourself. Oh yeah, it's, it's the like, world. It's hey. the world right there. You feel amazing. I like, I don't know. I know we're going to get into it and stuff like that, but when you watch Kirk up there just screaming his heart out, it's like, damn. I want to do that, even if we're just doing cover songs. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, yeah. That, at the end of like the end of "Smells Like Teen Spirit," a oh denial. My oh my god. You just, denial. Yeah. When like I, I so I did karaoke uh, with some homies a few a few uh, a couple weeks ago, and I did "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and oh, yeah. they, and they like the vibe of that group was not. They were not into rock, and so like at the end, I was screaming in the microphone, and like <laughs> so at the, so at the same time, like I'm like, experienced like the joy of screaming that cathartic feeling and then I look over and everyone just looks disinterested and I'm just like <laughs> we'll get into that later but I guess that's kind of what made Nirvana special right there's everybody that's like into that whole I guess culture and then there's some that are just like what's going on why is he singing that hard yeah <laughs> well no I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk about to talk with you about uh, you know Kurt Cobain as a musician because mm -hmm. I think a lot has been said about him mm -hmm. um but, you know, it's interesting what endears different people to him. So Absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to hear what you have to say. So let's, let's, let's get right into it. So, um, so what kind of music do you listen to, like, most currently? Most currently, it's, it's kind of all over the place, man. I feel like, as a guitarist, as you mentioned, you know, you start kind of in 
that shreddy phase, at least me personally. I always loved stuff that was very licky, and you kind of mellow out as you grow up as a musician. So currently I'm into very, like, prog, uh, Polyphia, Owain. There are a couple of, I guess, groups slash people that are very noodly all over the place, almost jazz fusion-oriented. That's currently what I'm into on, I guess, the rock slash guitar side, and then I'm I'm down an EDM rabbit hole right now. I know you hate it. <laughs> well, it's funny because like every time someone asks me, "Oh, what music you're into?" I always say everything except EDM. Like, <laughs> I can I can fuck with anything. I just like hip hop, jazz. I mean, play me stuff from the 20s. Of you course, know, uh, 1920s, not the 2020. Oh, <laughs> actually, probably 1920s over the 2020s to be honest. Fair but, enough. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> but play me an EDM song, and I'm like, not me. Except I respect Skrillex. I respect Skrillex. Oh, he's at the forefront of everything, though. And I guess kind of what draws me to it currently right now, I'm like in a stage where of life where I am lucky enough on the side to be able to have some recording equipment. And a lot of people who get into EDM kind of go down this rabbit hole where they think, oh, I have like the world is my oyster a little bit. Like you almost feel like a conductor in an orchestra because EDM, every single pinpoint of what you can control over the music is controllable. So you can go in, you can make 100 tracks, something that a live band couldn't do. I think it's just an aspect of music creation that I had never thought about growing up, and that's what makes it interesting. Well, I think that I think you come from the perspective, you're actually, you produce. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you do a lot of recording. Um, so you come at it from a different perspective. Like, mm-hmm. I'm listening for it, like, sonically and how it makes me feel, like, how I can compare sure. to other things I've listened to. The emotion. But I don't, yeah. but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting my feet wet right now with recording, but, I mean, you've been recording for years, so I think you come at it from a different perspective. So, like, from that point of view, like, I definitely, I respect it and I understand it for sure. Hell yeah. Um, so what kind of music were you spoon-fed as a child? Um, so my dad is in a Grateful Dead cover band, has been in a Grateful Dead cover band for the last, oof, I want to say, 25, 30 years, basically as long as I've been around. <laughs> Um, so that was his favorite band growing up. That's honestly my earliest memories as a child of what I would hear just around the house. And even though I was never super into it until recently, I love the jam band stuff too. I should have mentioned that, uh, I guess, in the first question. But I guess Jerry's influence never really went away. His noodling, his ability to almost, all those ghost notes, all that noodling, the way that every song, especially live, is never the same way twice. I think that was what I was spoon-fed as a child that kind of still somehow is like influence what I, influencing what I do today despite maybe me not being necessarily a Grateful Dead uh, super fan, if that makes sense. Well, does does like kind of being raised the, on Jerry Garcia, does that, I know as a musician and it's, it's influenced you, but what about the music that you listen to? Like the bands that you mentioned, is there kind of an umbilical cord between Jerry Garcia and what they do or... In a weird way, yes. They're not playing the same type of music, but Jerry did this cool thing. I know we're kind of going a little bit deep into like the, the, the technicality of what he's doing, but he does this thing called hybrid picking where he he's holding the pick with his thumb and his pointer, and he's using his uh, ring and his middle finger to essentially you know, hit the, the strings farther down. So he gets this almost banjo-like sound that actually a lot of guys like the Tim Hensons from Polyphia that I was mentioning earlier – kind of adopted and made into their own style. So it's all the same thing. It's just a different style of music. Right, right. <laughs> um, no, for sure. So um, obviously, you know, you having that Grateful Dead influence. Like for me, it was the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, my mom spoon-fed me Barbara Streisand, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um, anyways, so when did you start to discover music on your own, though? 
I think it's every kid's story from like the mid two thousands, but Guitar Hero. Like, was this Guitar Hero? It was literally Guitar Hero. A funny yeah. story. Like my dad had always. I mean, my dad was a classically trained as a pianist before he did anything else. Like his main instrument was guitar, but he was a piano player. Try to get me on that, I would not budge. He was like, "Oh, well, guitar's cool. Why wouldn't you pick that up?" I like had this like little mini acoustic that. Not even going to – this is a true story. Snapped in half because of the humidity in Arizona where we lived at the time. So I was like, well, guitar's not for me. <laughs> and then um, I want to say like around 10 or 11 years old, I went over to a sleepover. We were all playing Guitar Hero. Message in a bottle by the police. I was like, whoa, this is a cool song. <laughs> what if I could play that on a real guitar? And so I got Guitar Hero on my – and like that kind of – low-key made me good at like my left hand like just pressing the buttons and stuff so when I took guitar for sixth grade year um and started really you know trying to learn all those songs guitar hero I found that I was able to like you know get a little bit more motivation I was really into it and that helps you learn and grow through those first couple of years of learning any instrument honestly where you kind of suck yeah for sure um and in terms of listening to music do you kind of feel like uh the that like hearing message in a bottle is what mm-hmm. kind of took you to explore other like music maybe related to that or music outside of the Grateful Dead. Yes. That you were okay. One hundred percent. I think that entire soundtrack is filled with songs from like the eighties, nineties, early two thousands where it was like, Whoa, there's this whole genre of music that I really just hadn't heard on the radio too much and it's really musically cool to just sit down on a guitar and see it kind of I don't know, correlate, you kind of get, see what was going on in the musician's head when they were writing it and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I became, you know, when I, in my, in my early middle school years, I was super into like 80s rock, 90s rock. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just because of all the shreddy, it was, it was fun, man. Well, so, I got, I got so angry at Spotify the other day. Why is that? And uh, well, there was, there was a, not like Spotify the corporation, you know, because this will be posted on Spotify, my apologies. <laughs> but somebody made a playlist um, and it was like, it was like 80s hair, me like bad. I don't know for some reason I was like in a mood to hear Poison and Motley Crue. Oh, let's go. <laughs> Excuse me. And um and then like I looked I was like looked over the playlist and they had Soundgarden on there. And really? Like, how dare Just you sprinkled into the how, hair metal. How dare you consider Soundgarden <laughs> hair metal? You can't put them in the same no. picture. <laughs> Especially because all the hair metal artists accuse grunge of killing hair metal, which is kind of true. Actually, I was like, I really wanted to talk to you. But I was like, how am I going to fit in grunge killing hair metal? <laughs> but I was thinking about this, and here's my here's another hot take. Mm-hmm. Um, I think grunge is more metal than hair metal. Oh, 100%. Hair metal is so corporate. Hair metal is so corporate. <laughs> all the, Really, just for me, all they did was you had that like, you know, that kind of show-offy guitar solo, mm-hmm. and then you turn the reverb up a one million percent on the snare, mm-hmm. and that's it. That's, That's it. all you do. You're playing box chords the whole time. You're and just... like, and I feel like even like the distortion featured in hair metal songs, like it's not even like metal distortion. It's like crunchy. One hundred percent. And then as far as like the lyrics slash melodies that go over top of it, it's just kind of cookie cutter. You can kind of take a lot of that out of some songs, put it into what's his face from Motley Crue's mouth, and it's it sounds Vince different. Neil, yeah. Vince Neil, but it's yeah. like you know a lot of it's kind of copy paste. Oh yeah. <laughs> Formulaic as hell. Yes, I still love it. Don't get me wrong. No. Oh yeah. But that was kind of the first form of like, oh, wait, we can just make a bunch of bands with long hair and kind of do this over and over again, and people are going to love it. Like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, if you ever watch this, like, VH1 Rock Docs, they would always talk about, like, the formula of how you did it. And, like, there was a really easy formula for getting, like, two million, you know, two million copies sold of your album, but getting mm-hmm. three million, oof, oof. that was... 
That was the challenge. I will say um, Van Halen, I think, stands head and shoulders above those other bands. Because I know they're kind of classified yeah. sometimes into that, but Eddie was something else. Well, yeah, the thing, but also, I think once you get, when Sammy Hagar took mm. over, I think that's when they kind of got into hair metal territory. Exactly. Yeah. But, like, no, I mean, Eddie Van Halen is, God. I mean, he's as, as good as it gets. Um, Rest in, in peace. Terms of, yeah, in, in terms of lead guitar players. Um, but it's like, you know, it's a song. I mean, David Lee Roth, Sammy Hagar, they weren't great songwriters. No, it was really um, all the music that yeah, was coming out. It was the, it was the instrumentals. Um, but but I would even say, like, grunge was more metal than Van Halen, you know? I agree. I um, agree. Grunge, and I know we'll get down, and I know you're going to talk about that. We'll talk about that. But it really was more of a sobering, candid, honest take on music as opposed to what was happening. In the oh, movies. yeah. And I just felt like even the fact – what I love about grunge, and I – said this a million times, I was saying it to the music teacher um, at the school that I work at yesterday, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I was saying that, like, it's just amazing that you have this city, this random city like Seattle, which is, like, a big city, it's not a huge city, mm-hmm. you know, it's not New York or L.A. or Chicago, and you have just, I mean, at least four, five, six, seven bands that became massively successful and became mm-hmm. incredibly influential all over the world, and to this day, their, yep. their influence is still, you know, palpable. And it's it's just for me it's amazing that it just comes from this random city. And it was all overnight. It was yep <laughs> yep. Literally it some something yeah. happened in nineteen ninety one or nineteen whatever ninety two never mind whatever you know. And I know I don't know. Do you want to transition and start going down that rabbit hole? Of yeah yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is this is what happens when you get a podcast host that has ADHD. <laughs> the guest is gonna be like, you, you gotta. No, no, you no, gotta focus, my dude. No, you're doing, you're doing great. This is so much. Fun. I, I, I appreciate. This it. is good. Um, so when did you first hear of Nirvana? So, um, similar story, Guitar Hero Two, man. I think it was Heart Shaped Box. Yeah. And I was like, I honestly at first I was like, I don't really like this song. It's not really that. <laughs> it's not really that shreddy. It's not really upbeat. It's just so sobering. It's so just kind of, I don't know, mellow and. I didn't really start getting into Nirvana until high school because we, co- I mean, like we were in jazz band all together, and "Smells Like Teen Spirit" was something very easy that the, that the rhythm section was like, "Yo, Mr. Bruce isn't looking. Let's fucking play this." <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, I guess, to answer that question in two ways: first, heard Nirvana in middle school, high school is when I first started getting like into them. I would say. Yeah, gotcha. Um, so, what are some of your favorite Nirvana songs or or even albums if you're familiar with with them? Yeah, I'm not uh, quite as, I guess, fam- I'm familiar. I wouldn't say I'm quite w- well-versed with the chronologic right. you know, stuff they put out. But I know it was, uh, Nevermind was their second album. Right. It was Bleach, Bleach that was their first yep. album. I like Nevermind. I know Bleach is more them, but Nevermind just had well, so many bangers on it. And I mean, that's that's an interesting question. <laughs> and if we, and if I if if I respond to that statement, we're going to go down another rabbit hole. <laughs> So, but no, but you know that they, you know that they did not just two albums, right? They, they had did three. three. They had uh, yeah. utero in utero in utero okay. in utero, and then they had like a compilation album mm-hmm. uh, in between. Uh, I think it was between uh, Bleach and Nevermind. But... Okay, and I know they had that famous acoustic set that they did. Oh, the unplugged. Yeah, and I, unplugged. And I talk about that a lot in the previous episodes, and that's another question. That's another question I should have put on here, but. That unplugged performance is really oh my unbelievable. Gosh. Yeah, it was interesting because I was like, I was reading a, re- a review of that, and mm-hmm. someone was just like, you know, the tragic nature of that performance. Obviously, it was their last major performance mm-hmm. um, before Cobain's death, and that because it's so different than really just about any, everything 
than anything in Nirvana's discography. So yeah. it kind of shows you maybe that's the direction that Cobain was heading. Absolutely. Um, but we'll never know. That's the sad part, man. Yeah. There was even some... Uh, in preparation of this, I was actually kind of listening to that Unplugged show. I know it wasn't one of their originals, but Lake of Fire, mm-hmm. I was sitting there listening to that, and I'm like, if they went in this direction, man, that would be crazy. That- we, yeah. Well, what's awesome about that, I mean, that's a song by the Meat Puppets, which is obviously not a main, you know, like a pop band or anything. Right. You know, they, they have a good following, but um, but now I think I was looking at Spotify. That song, that cover has, you know, over 100 million plays on Spotify, like, mm-hmm. wild. Um and it's just it's just a cover that they, they did, and, and they did such a great job on it. Um, but uh, anyways, do you... Um, oh, so what are some of your favorite Nirvana songs that will be on Lake of Fire? Ooh, About a Girl. Okay. I love About a Girl. I just think it's so different kind of from the... I listened through Bleach a little bit, and I was like, this is just kind of an outlier here, but I I like it. It's kind of an early form of like their more melodic stuff. It's really cool, and it's really pleasant. But then off of Nevermind, I love... I know we'll talk about this later because I think this is – I'm getting ahead of myself. Their signature song to me is In Bloom. Okay. I love In Bloom. Okay. I, I love Smells Like Teen Spirit. Um, apologies. All apologies. Oh, apologies. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's just – you know me. I'm very melodic. I love the stuff you can sing along to. But I also understand a lot of the message and kind of the uh, the sarcasm in all yeah. of those songs too. Yeah. And so that's what makes it so cool cool to me is that they're, they're aware that like a lot of the people listening to this are not going to understand what the song means but because it's catchy and you can sing along well, to I, it. well I, I wonder maybe maybe they were aware of that and that's why you know Cobain named a song Rape Me you know in, 100%. in utero because mm-hmm. listeners you can't ignore that oh no you can't you know and that I listened to a couple of songs from that album too and I realized like because that's the part of also Nirvana's chapter i guess where things were getting a little bit more chippy i know there was a, that whole thing with kurt how he wanted the world more royalties and things like that the band wasn't exactly in a happy place at, compared to their per, first two albums and that album i was listening through it and i was like they're just begging for people to like find a reason to have a problem with this almost <laughs> well you know it's interesting because i i love in utero and it, what's cool about it is that it's really it's not polished like never mind there's mm-hmm. really not a whole lot of pop songs on the album exactly um the lyrics are darker um mm-hmm. and i really think that's i think that's the pinnacle of cobain as a songwriter is that album and i would say like i would say in utero is probably my favorite nirvana album gotcha um it kind of works backwards for me favorites in utero then never mind then bleach because like i listen there's definitely i appreciate bleach and there's some songs in there that i think are, are awesome like love buzz and about a girl school is awesome negative creep obviously Big cheese. Big cheese. <laughs> I like big cheese. It's so like, yeah. They said they were inspired by Sabbath, and in that song, I was like, "Holy shit, that's like." Black <laughs> but but I think that that's such a big part of grunge is the influences you have the underground influences that like hardcore punk had, but then also Kurt Cobain loved the Beatles, loved Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's so cool. Like they found a way to like. You always say, hear people say, "Oh, I'm influenced by this," but they're not able to really show that in some of their work and right. they did such a good job on that album like right. showing especially with it being their first album this is who we are and like it's just a perfect first album in my opinion yeah it's so cool no it's awesome but uh no I, I love i that that album is great it's just i i do it's a little bit more on the the metal side for yes. me and i'm mm-hmm. you know i like metal i'm just not not a huge metal guy um so do you ever play, or, you know, you're a great guitarist, do you ever play or have you ever played any songs by Nirvana on guitar, whether it was in a band or just, like, you know, playing in your bedroom? 
Oh, I'm trying to remember. I think we covered Smells Like Teen Spirit at like some like random show my high school band played. We played it horribly. And, <laughs> since, and since, because you know, we were 16, we're still yeah. developing. Like some like kid going through puberty singing. <laughs> and then, yeah, I don't think it sounded that good. The voice cracks during that. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> but uh, since then, I don't think I've played it in a band setting. I'd love if we would ever get a chance to play a Nirvana song. I would never say no to that am i like on my own i love playing heart shape box that's just one yeah. that like if i'm just sitting there and just having a day that's what i yeah. kind of go to um but no I, I really wish we could honestly play more stuff with the band i think it'd be so cool it's just hard yeah. to pull off the thing i think like instrumentally it would be real easy um because like you know there i don't think their, their stuff was too complex i think dave Grohl probably would be the hardest to emulate so you know mm. the burden would fall on me but absolutely um, yeah, <laughs> but uh, I think I think pulling off the vocals that would be that you gotta have. I think Kurt was so good at making something sound so harsh yet so nice. Yeah, and just I don't know, soft in a way. Like even when you heard it, even when he was talking in interviews and you know whatever, he he just has this voice that is really hard to emulate. Yeah, capture. So for no, for sure, and uh, something that I mentioned in the the previous segment. Um, of this episode is that scream, yes. you know, and I like what you said. Like it's it's melodic, mm-hmm. um, and it's gnarly at the same time, you know. Exactly, because it. I think that kind of plays into a part why they were so big so quickly. Because you had, I remember reading this uh, about them. It was like a journalist described it as they pleased everyone. They pleased the underground fans mm-hmm. that they had, you know had from the beginning, and they pleased the jocks that eventually started showing up their shows. It's like, oh, that yeah. sounds cool. He sounds like a fun guy to go listen yeah. to. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just no cool. for for sure. Um, and why do you think Nirvana had had or has had such a big influence on rock music? Um, I think kind of just to what we just were talking about too. It's like they just captured a little bit of everything that anyone was able to resonate with. Like you had people who, you know, were into that grunge, outcast type of vibe that felt, you know, wait, 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 grunge like outcast, like like. Grunge hip hop mix. <laughs> I was I was more going for like. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know you were saying, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Sorry. listen, we're we're doing this podcast out of Atlanta. We got to shout out <laughs> Outcast at some point. Yeah, one hundred percent. Shout out to Outcast. We actually do cover them. <laughs> we do, we do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's more like you know that that Outcast type of uh, you know not fitting in with you know not conforming, and then they also have. That ability just to appeal to the masses where it's like, damn, I want to jump up and down and sing this song. Yeah. And I also think they were such a big influence because of how quickly they came and went. Yeah. That is a huge, like, the fact that they overnight became rock stars and overnight again were just, that was it. I think that's the, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? The lore. The lore, exactly. The lore of Nirvana yeah. makes them so such a big influence, and you you hear it in like new all the punk bands, even the pop punk bands that came after it. It's like we were into Nirvana. Well, I mean, you have just so many of those, you know, those post grunge bands mm-hmm. like the late '90s, early 2000s. You know, like I talked about Puddle of Mud. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. Creed, um, mm-hmm. Nickelback, all of those, you know, those post grunge bands, which kind of now they're kind of the butt of every joke. But you know, they had they had a their heyday was they were pretty massively successful. Um, and you know they played right off of Nirvana sound, 
uh, probably in a negative direction. <laughs> like, what was it when they were playing the Super Bowl commercial? Creed came down, he flew down. Oh, I haven't, I haven't seen. That. Oh my god, he, he like flew down from like a helicopter. I don't know, I, I forget the exact way he landed on the field, but it was like something's completely extra, and it was like with arms wide open. Yeah, <laughs> it's like what's what's happening here. <laughs> well, and another grunge band, I really think I think Creed really ripped off more Pearl Jam than Nirvana. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember the first time that I heard Pearl Jam because I had read about them when I was right after I'd gotten into Nirvana and I was reading mm-hmm. about them, and uh, I listened to a Last Kiss, and I heard it, and I was like, "Is this Creed?" Because you know, I. <laughs> And like I'm so like the th- I can't believe silly. I just said that, and I can't believe I thought that. But like I feel like that's it's really I attribute that to more Creed ripping off Pearl Jam than them actually being similarity in their sound. On the same boat, man. Growing up, I heard this. You know, I heard both bands, and I was really like, are they like the same singer? And he just did something else later. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is he the damn um, girl? <laughs> but but it just it. I mean, it just kind of proves that I mean how influential grunge. And, and Nirvana and, and all those bands were, um, so uh, do would you say their kind of their ability to appeal to the masses, um, yet also please their uh, you know the underground fans? You think that's what made them unique, or was there something else you think that made them unique? Whether it was their songwriting, whether it was the instrumentals, I think that's one part of it. You've got that part we just discussed. The other part is their, even though we're putting them in the same group as a lot of those other grunge bands from the you know the 90s they were different they had this way of making a nice little verse that kind of rung you in and then like a punchy chorus that caught you completely off guard and i don't think any other band really got that down i think nirvana's sound is never going to be replicated it's never going i mean i'm sure there's bands that have replicated it and have the same idea of like a you know a raspy grungy punch chorus but it's like the way they did it no one had ever done it before mm-hmm. and i just thought that's what made them so different is that they could, yeah, you know, go low, high, yeah, in the middle, too slow, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a lot of the stuff that I mentioned in the previous segment. It's like that mm-hmm. kind of that uh, that contrast between like the soft verse and the, mm-hmm. the loud chorus, um, for sure. And I think you know we've been talking about Kurt, but like you, you mentioned briefly, Dave's drumming that doesn't sound the same without Dave on the kit. And yeah. I know they went through like. 500 drummers yeah. in the yeah. first you know yep. two three years of them you being did do your, your homework i did a little homework <laughs> i always thought that dave was part of it from the very beginning and i was yeah. like no they had a, they had a problem finding him <laughs> i think because he was in a band called like scream or scream, something yep. like that mm-hmm. and then they just disbanded and i don't know if he would have joined if that didn't oh absolutely happen. not so yeah i mean they weren't i think like you know if you listen to dave Grohl, i don't think like they were massive successful but they were they were making a living they were mm-hmm. they were touring their opening for like you know pretty well-known bands um and i think dave Grohl was just love and just kind of touring and playing music and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff so i think he was pretty probably content with being in scream so and probably just based on the timeline nirvana probably would have found another drummer and who knows what would have happened and it's so crazy also like listen to dave talk about it now because there was a couple interviews that i noted where it was like he was not prepared for how big they got, because obviously it happened so quickly. Yeah, like they did, yeah. they did reading one year and it was like they're opening up for people and whatever. Yeah. And the next year they were obviously headlining. And Dave, I guess, had like panic attacks. He was like, "We're about to go, you know, put on a show for people who are there to see us. It's different now. It's so yeah. weird. So it's uh, that's just part of the lore where it's like, wow, we're famous overnight. Dave Grohl was freaking out. 
Kurt's having a hard time dealing with it. Chris is just doing his thing. Yeah. Chris is just like, I'm like, I'm like six foot, I'm like seven foot, foot ten, you know, whatever. I'm just going to do my own thing. Dave said when he, he met them, because yeah. I'm sure you're going to reference that yeah. guy too. It was like, is this little dude and that yeah. guy? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he's like, Kurt, so, so short and quiet. And Chris is like a million feet tall. That's Nirvana? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, have you watched that video though? Uh, when Dave Grohl talks about like when he's doing an acoustic set with the Foo Fighters and he's talking about like the history of like how he joined Nirvana. No, it was more just reading. I'm interested. Yeah, like I, I, I'll, I'll send you that video. It's and and for people that uh, you know listening, definitely check out the video. I, I don't know if it's still on YouTube, but um, mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty funny story that he tells. Awesome. Um, Dave's so funny when he tells no. stories too. So, oh no, Dave is Dave is great. I mean, he really is. I mean, I, he really is. I'm gonna make so this, this a show about hot takes. I sure. really feel like he's our like, you know, the silent generation, the baby boomers. They have Paul McCartney, right? Mm-hmm. He's that like enduring rock star. That I mean, maybe obviously not as heart heavy as Dave Grohl, but you know, Paul McCartney, it, you know, did the Beatles in the '60s and did Wings in the '70s, mm-hmm. and then you know he would have features after that. Um, I really feel like like our gener like Dave Grohl is our generation like millennials and uh, Gen Z like I think that and probably Gen X too like he's our Paul McCartney in the sense that like you know he was this massively successful drummer with one of the all time most successful bands and then he went and became the frontman of Foo Fighters another just uh, you know generational success I one hundred percent agree with that and it's such a cool take because a lot of guys and girls too like you know they're known for one. thing they're known for that band or that solo project they did, and they'll go and do something else. And people are like, "Eh, wasn't yeah. really vibing with what they did afterwards." But I really liked them in this. Right. And Dave had that magical way of just, you know, Foo Fighters, and everyone loved the Foo Fighters. Yeah. But he's also the front man now. It's 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 so but cool. It's, you know, interesting. But what's what's cool about the Foo Fighters, and I was thinking about this the other day, it's like they're completely distinct bands, mm-hmm. but there's that rhythmic cohesion. There's that tightness. Mm-hmm. Where all it's like the rhythm, like the whole band is playing in unison, and, yep. and they really and the rhythm is the highlight of the the songs for me. I feel like that is present in Nirvana stuff and mm-hmm. Foo Fighters. Like I remember the first time I heard you know the song "Best of You" by the Foo Fighters. Oh yeah, like that in that bridge that you know, like yeah. I feel like that's that's one of like in in kind of the process that I did for determining like the common themes in Nirvana songs. Like I did, I, I really noticed that, that rhythmic cohesion and mm-hmm. how that was almost because they didn't do guitar solos. Right. That's kind of that, those, the, the sprinkles on top that really uh, endeared people towards them. And I feel like you saw that as well uh, with the Foo Fighters. It's that's what happens when a drummer writes your songs. <laughs> 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 that's what happens to <laughs> Yeah. It's very rhythmically sound, and you can you can tell Dave was like, "I want this part punchy here. I want this here. Like that's what makes them so good, man." Oh, for sure. Um, and uh, now we're probably we've been agreeing quite a bit, so now we're probably gonna start disagreeing. Let's do it. I'm ready. Uh, how do you define a signature song? I'm probably gonna have a little different take than you. I'm very oh, I'm gonna please everybody here, but like, my that's kind of my thought. A signature song can be. One thing to people who are with the band from the beginning, saw them grow, saw them change, or an artist in just general. Like, and this, you can point here and say, this is where they were most them. And then you can have, I guess, the other take slash the other, you know, preference from like the masses who only got into this band maybe later on in, you know, their careers and 
say, well, this is what I heard. This is what got me into them, and that could be their signature song. So I guess with Nirvana, a lot of people would say, you know, who are super into the band, oh, yeah, Smells Like Teen Spirit, that's their song. Mm-hmm. And I know we both feel differently about that, but I'm also going to be like, I'm not going to disagree that that's not their signature song to, like, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So that's, I guess, my take on it. Well, I think that would be, like the, like you said, the mainstream take, that Smells mm-hmm. Like Teen Spirit is their, uh, is their signature song. Um, and what would you say... I mean, you, you said that you just, well, you kind of alluded to earlier, but mm-hmm. you said Nirvana, or In Bloom is Nirvana's signature song? I think so. Personally, like, I guess, if we are coming at it from the same point of view as, you know, trying to also encompass what they did before slash who they became, In Bloom was, to me, is them. Mm-hmm. In Bloom is making fun of people who got into them and have no idea what they're actually singing about. Mm-hmm. And that's Nirvana right there. Mm-hmm. That's, oh, I'm at this show and it sounds cool. But I'm not really resonating with any of these yeah. lyrics. <laughs> yeah. So I just think the beauty of In Bloom is that he's the one. Yeah. You know, it's just, I don't know. That's personally when I heard that song also, I thought that was like them. That's like what they were building up towards. And that's kind of, I don't know, I'm rambling now. But that's my that's my signature song. Though. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love the first time I heard In Bloom and I, I loved it. And uh you know, I would say of the singles um, on Nevermind, like you, you could make an argument. Like for me, that's definitely one of their. That could be above "Smells Like Teen Spirit" in terms of the signature song. For me, it's definitely above "Come As You Are." Mm-hmm. I, I I got a little bit critical of "Come As You Are" in the in the previous segment. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, just for me, like yes. so, the lyrics are completely nonsensical, mm-hmm. um, and there's some there's some pretty witty wordplay, but. Um, you know, the lyrics are nonsensical, and they essentially ripped off the riff. Uh, did you know that? You didn't know that? No. So there's, I think the name of the band is Killing Joke. Okay. And I don't remember where they were from. I think they're British, but they were, okay. uh, they have a song called The 80s. Um, and you listen to that riff, and it's, it's like, it's almost as bad as uh, Vanilla Ice uh, and Queen, you know, the un- uh, under pressure. For, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. So it's like, for me, listen, I think Come As You Are is a great song. There's a lot sure. of things about it, mm-hmm. but... For me, I can't. I can't in good conscience say that a signature song is, you know, when the when the the foundation of the song was essentially ripped off. Interesting. I want to go listen to it. Now yeah. Because it will. I always thought of that. That is such a unique song from yeah. Nirvana's, you know, repertoire. You know, uh, arsenal. Yeah. I have a hard time swallowing that they stole that riff. <laughs> but it's a cool song. Come oh, yeah. As you are. And I'm sure and, that's uh, what, you know masked it. I'm sure that's what made it theirs, the, the lyrics, like you said. Yeah. But also, people, like, focus on that, like, really dark irony of mm-hmm. that the chorus, like, you know, I swear that I don't have a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, which, that'll, that, I should have made that line right before the last question. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get down the rabbit hole. But, um, sure. so, what did you think of my selection of uh, of Lithium as Nirvana's signature song? It definitely is, I, going back to what I said about it, it's different for everybody. I still agree with your selection i think i agree you with can't it. agree with the selection and say in bloom but is for the... you it is <laughs> i get it though but it's I get ryan it. gilman the people pleaser. i just don't think a yeah. course that goes yeah 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 <laughs> but there's but it's the, the the humor the irony in that is so nirvana it is so nirvana and i guess that's what i was getting at when we were talking about the punchiness the yeah. out of left fieldness yeah that's nirvana right there like People are singing along to it. It's catchy, but it's also got this sarcastic meaning underneath, man. And so, yeah. 
I'm curious what I would like to know why you feel it. It is and why In Bloom maybe wouldn't be. Yeah, so In Bloom I didn't even consider in the top five, but but the way that I went about the top five was more I, I really looked at like, okay, here are the here are the songs that I know that people would consider their signature songs. And I think that like In Bloom, if you look at their hits from or their singles from Nevermind, that's number four, right? Sure. You had Tony Seen Spirit, Come As You Are, I mean those are all time you know, popular uh, rock songs and Lithium is really popular as well. And then In Bloom, obviously, if you're a, a rock fan, you know the song. But if you're a, like, just like kind of a casual radio listener, you probably never heard it. Um, mm. So In Bloom, for me, definitely has like a lot of the traits that I would consider like signature Nirvana. Mm. Um, like you've got that, you've got that, uh, you know, slow chorus or soft co- or soft verse, mm-hmm. loud chorus. Um, but to me, like, and it definitely has that that humor um, that I think uh, uh, you know a lot of people identify with Nirvana. But where it kind of loses me is that there's that darkness in Nirvana, and to me, like signature Nirvana, there has to be the presence of that darkness. And like for me, I would say more than Lithium, or not o- almost as much as Lithium. Like I really had a lot of trouble deciding between sure. Lithium and Heart Shaped Box. Interesting. Because okay. Heart Shaped Box, to me, that's so Nirvana. And it also, is. the lyrics in that song, are, I think that's probably, lyrically overall, I think that's Cobain's uh, crowning achievement. Um, just in terms of, like, skill. Like, it, it is, he paints an unbelievably dark picture, but it's unbelievable. Right? That's where we're going to agree. Because right? Heart Shaped Box yeah. was the one I was fighting with, too. Yeah. So I think we're gonna we're meeting the middle ground where it's like, Maybe I'm not looking at it from that dark perspective, but yeah. you're totally right. You're, you're very right about the darkness. Um, but but also, like, I think, like, more also the the balance between, and, I'm, and the word that I use, that seesaw between darkness and humor, mm-hmm. I think that heart-shaped box is just a little bit on the darker side. And there is there is the, the comic relief of the chorus, but I think not enough um, to bring it back from how you know dark it gets because it heart shape box gets real dark. Oh my god! On Guitar Hero, yeah. I was like, "Ooh, orange note, blue note, yellow note. <laughs> this is fun." And then you look at the lyrics, and it's like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, eleven year olds shouldn't be comprehending what this no. means. <laughs> no. Uh, oh my god! Yeah. Oh my goodness, but lithium. But you know what? What I think there was the only thing that was missing from lithium is that I noticed and. Uh, that a lot of times Kurt, his guitar solo, because he, he wasn't a great lead guitar guitar player, um, but his solos, uh, I always like the effects of but he always kind of interprets the melody of either the chorus yes. of the verse, and he, mm-hmm. and he kind of loosely bases his solos off that. And I was like, well, Lithium doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. However, the, you know, in terms of songwriting, there's, he paints the story, right? Mm-hmm. Do, you know what lithi- do you know what Lithium's about? I actually don't. So it's essentially like about a guy who loses his significant other. And it's kind of unclear how he loses his significant other. Like, if you listen to the lyrics, like, it sounds like it could be murder. But, like, mm. in, in an interview, Kurt Cobain kind of, um, uh, you know, debunked that theory, if you will. Okay. Um, but, and and in his way of coping with the death of his significant other is through religion. Um, so you really that. have... Yeah. Right, so, yeah. you know, a lot of, like, Cobain's songwriting for me is, like, very nonsensical, but that is, like, very clear... Um, and you have like an idea of what's going on, um, and so obviously, like that plot I just told you—I mean, that's dark. That's right? really dark, yeah. But almost every line, half of it is dark, and then half of it is humorous, mm-hmm. right? And that's 
I, I can see totally where you're coming from, yeah. and that's Nirvana right yeah. there. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I think that like that is a pure example of why Cobain is considered one of the all-time great rock songwriters, mm-hmm. and just his evolution of a songwriter. I think that's I think that song was the turning point because like the lyrics on Bleach are kind of nonsensical, you know, you know, nothing special. Never mind, you have like songs like Come As You Are and Soul Eighteen Spirit, which really don't have. Uh, an overall theme and then you have like in bloom which does obviously mm-hmm. and then lithium i think those i think lithium though is that's the turning point that's the where i listen and i'm like okay this guy in addition to being this great singer uh mm-hmm. great front man etc is an unbelievable songwriter absolutely he makes and like going back to what you had uh, said a little earlier too like i think that's what turned me off from nirvana originally because i was like this guy is playing a guitar solo he's just noodling around and messing up and <laughs> yeah. it doesn't make any sense but then you like you put that in context as you I don't know you listen to them more and like even go into their live performances where he like he got sick and tired of playing Smells Like Teen Spirit and butchered it every time <laughs> <laughs> and that's just the way that uh, like I'll, I'll be like scrolling through the comic section it's like there's not a more imperfect, perfect way to play this song. <laughs> and that's Kurt Cobain right yeah. there. And then you tie in the lyrics of like half of it's dark and half of it's like, what? He's making a joke yeah. out of this? And that's Nirvana. Yeah. So I can, I get it. I completely can see why the lithium is, is yours. I'm going to stick to In Bloom though. No. Listen, please. <laughs> please. Healthy disagreement. Healthy right? disagreement. Sorry, uh, I, I'm not. We had like, I, I'm also, on, I used to be on a sports podcast and we would go into these debate segments and I'd be like, Man, this guy's got a point. <laughs> and I'm the worst debater ever. <laughs> but we can respectfully disagree. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so my last question, which I don't know how long we could get into the rabbit hole. And this is kind of, this is the first time we'll talk. And this is not really related to music per se. Again, this is not a true crime podcast. But sure. I feel like you can't really um, be a millennial and or, uh, you know, Gen Z, because I know it has transferred, uh, you know, into uh, different generations. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you could really talk about Nirvana without talking about Cobain's death and sure. the conspiracies around it. So you said that you went down the rabbit hole of Cobain's death. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? I went down the rabbit hole like one night where I was just like, you know, you're up too late on a Friday. You're like, I don't have work tomorrow, but like, I'm just going to stay up and do something. <laughs> So, like, I listened to a podcast about it, and just the circumstances of what happened made it, made it seem like Courtney Love had everything to gain from it. But personally, I don't actually think he was, you know, murdered. I really do think he killed himself. It just, there were a couple of weird things, like the credit card, where, like, they, like I think his credit card was used to buy flowers on the day his body was discovered. No fingerprints ever found on the gun. That's also, you know. That's not abnormal per se, but still a little bit weird. And then the prenup that that they signed before the wedding and all that stuff. I don't know. I just there's a lot of weird things where I guess the the conspiracy theory is that you know Courtney could have hired somebody or mm. so, I guess, or the detective I guess thinks that someone yeah. was sitting there and actually had him. You know he was he was on heroin. He probably didn't have any idea what he was doing. It could have been very easy easy to manipulate him in that time. Mm. So I don't know. Like I think about it a lot. But I truly want, I think I want to believe that he was just in a bad place and became happier after. I don't want to think that he was killed. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? And, and I was, for the longest time, I was one of those people that thought that Courtney did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think. I, 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 I really think I think that Kurt killed himself. I mean, you know, you, 
look at you know the timeline of, of his life and things were mm-hmm. getting really hard from around that time and he really I mean there, there's videos out there of when you know he was on heroin and he was yep. really struggling oh, it was he bad. struggled you know most of his life with mental health stuff and he also had like a really bad stomach uh, stomach yes. condition um, mm-hmm. I think he like said IBS because I don't think he ever actually had like a real diagnosis of it um, and I think when you're kind of going through all of that stuff um, and you know obviously going from zero to 60 that like we talked about going from you know obscurity to being the biggest rock star in the world um, you know I just think it was probably really difficult for him and you know the fact that he OD'd uh, was it the beginning of March yeah, because he went to Rome, right? Yeah, he yeah. was in Rome. He was in Rome. And he, I don't think he overdosed on heroin. I think it was like pills and alcohol. Yes, pills. And um, then didn't he like, I think Pat Smear was like, I think he called him after it happened. And Kurt was like, no, I'm sorry. Like, I, I'm not going to die. Like, I want to stay with you guys. And that, I think that was Pat's like last call with him. And it was like. I how, when, when was that? Was that? It was right after it happened. It was yeah. cool. It was not cool. It, it was interting because everyone thinks about how it affected Grohl. Chris, I don't think anyone yeah. actually thinks about Pat. Poor Pat. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Pat. Dude, he did so much with Nirvana. He's done so much with Foo, with Foo Fighters, but yeah. like no one, you no know, because yeah, he's a, he, he's kind of like he's quiet. He stays he's quiet. Kind of in the background. And um, and I guess kind of going back to Cobain's mental health, it's that his death. I feel like is kind of symbolic in a way too to where he was kind of the last I want to say mental ill person because there's people have very people struggle with that every day but you think about musicians today who are put on the face of everything they have to do TikTok videos they have to do YouTube videos I don't think we're ever going to see another Cobain because I don't think there's ever going to be someone in that mental state who let's be real when you're in that mental state you write amazing music you put out, you put your heart out on that paper and in, into your instrument. And you put it out there to the world, and that a lot of time that's the greatest music ever. I don't think someone that's in that state is ever going to be on a TikTok reel. And be yeah. Like, oh yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't see Amy Winehouse. <laughs> exactly. You know, being on a TikTok. And I agree with you. I mean, I think like some of some of the best music that I've ever listened to. You know, people write it and they're in a really bad place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I just ref, you know reference Amy Winehouse. I mean, she struggled with addiction and mental health. Issues mm-hmm. and she put out some unbelievable music. Uh, you know, I think I think when I agree with you when you get into songwriting, I think mm-hmm. that's the case. I think being an instrumentalist, I don't know necessarily how mental health affects songwriting, but like for me as a songwriter, I definitely like if I'm not in a good place, it's gonna be really raw. Yes. Or if I'm or if I'm writing about in a time in my life where I wasn't in a good place, mm-hmm. it's gonna be really raw. And I think that Kirk, that's. If there's one thing that defines Kirk Cobain as a musician, it's that's the word. Wrong. That's the word I would use: is songwriting, is musicianship. And you look at it today, like let's be real here: the, the business, the music industry is much more risk averse now. No one's gonna ever risk their investment on someone who's singing about that type of thing anymore. That's just not gonna happen. We yeah. we need things that are happy. We need things that are right. relatable. We need things that are almost box. Well, you know, it's even like that that song that um, what was it? Numb little bug. Numb little bug. That was a, Russell showed us that um, Russell's the keyboardist in our band. Uh, he showed us that song. Great guy. And uh, he uh, he showed us that song. I think probably it was a year ago when uh, around when it came out. And uh, it's a song. It's about depression, mm-hmm. but it's it's very upbeat and poppy and happy. So it's yes. like going back to if you're not really listening, if you're not really listening to the lyrics, 
you're going to interpret it as like a really happy song. Exactly. But I think also, but there still is a presence though for that kind of darker music, like lyrically, um, you know, just because of the way the music industry has evolved. I mean, you have so many independent artists and you have so you many other ways of, you know, distributing music. I agree. I think, and I'm not one of those guys that's going to be like, music sucks now, like everything sucks. Cause I think we actually have the greatest music ever right now. You just have to go find it. I just don't right. think there's ever going to be any other Nirvanas that are basically headlining slash in the public eye they're doing what yeah. they're doing. Well, I think it's because now, you know, it's so much easier to hear different music mm-hmm. that it's, you know, you're, it, and I don't even want to use this in a bad way, but I think we're saturated with different artists. Yes. Whereas sort of, it's really hard to have that kind of standout artist. Back in the early 90s, mm-hmm. there was only, you know, a handful of popular artists yes. or, you know, accessible artists. You know, you'd have to, if you wanted to like go find, you know, the indie bands, the underground stuff, you'd have to go to record stores or mm-hmm. go to like live venues and discover music that way. So it's obviously it's a lot easier now. Um, so I just think that's kind of what enabled a, a kind of like standout band like Nirvana to emerge. Like, would, would you say we've had, like, just think of, you know, in the Spotify age, in the Apple Music age, maybe the last five, ten years, has there been an artist or a band that's come out that has had that kind of stardom level? Not like a, like a pop singer, because I think that's always going to happen, but like mm-hmm. that rock band to come out, or just a band of any nature to come out and have that kind of position like Nirvana. Ooh, that's so tough. Because I, I can't think. I can't, I can't think. I really can't think of anybody. And you're saying from like a, like, are you saying from a Nirvana standpoint of like just the grunge, the rawness of it? Not the, well, maybe the rawness, but I'm, I'm just thinking that that level of stardom and that level mm-hmm. of influence. I can't really think of anybody. I really can't. Because I, like, just the way they're like comprised. Mm-hmm. They had like three guys. It wasn't like they were using a whole lot of backing tracks on yeah. stage. Their sh- live shows, let's be real, were not really like anything musically fantastic. Yeah, yeah. they I were can't... not. They were not polished. Yeah. I can't think of any band that goes out there today and plays something like that. Yeah, most people today are like, "Well, they suck live. I'm not, <laughs> not going to go see them again." Yeah, Nirvana's like, "Wow, I was just there for the experience." Yeah, I think they're not okay. He's not the same genre. But Tame Impala does have a way of kind of putting his emotion into his live performances. That's yeah. not very, it's not the same as Nirvana, but if I was to go see a show and I wouldn't particularly worry that it's exactly like, um, you know, the studio recording, mm-hmm. but it's also like a rock band. And it's also like, you know, a performance in a sense. Mm-hmm. Tame Impala, I think. Could, Tame Impala, interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think, and I can't think of a band with that kind of stardom and influence, really since the killers. Yeah, Damon Pollard, he's like he's big, but he's not even like he's not a household name. No, I would say so. No. Yeah, I mean, he's I not. I don't think is, is any of his stuff like top forty. Uh, I think the less I know, the better. Yeah. Was the last time he was, and that that album came out in like 2015, yeah. 16. Since then, he's had a couple of great albums, but it's nothing like you know household music. Yeah. All right, my dude. Thank you so much. <laughs> this was so much fun. That flew by, man. That's a good yeah. sign. <laughs> yeah, man. That was. Let's just. That's, I, talking about music man it's, it's fun man I, I appreciate you having me on and i would love to come on in the future i think you've got a great podcast here and i'm excited to see where it goes uh, thank you so much man this means the world uh you're the man and you're uh the man. yeah have a good one you as well dove talk to you soon